Good morning, everyone. I don't know if this is headsets working or not, but <laughs> okay, cool. Um, thanks, Justin, for leading worship. Um, I met Justin, it was a couple months ago, and just been connecting with him and found out that he led worship, and uh, so we've been playing some music together, and it's been fun, and it was nice today to be out there with you guys when I'm getting ready to preach, and uh, just really help me get focused and, and ready for what we're doing today. So we're doing a, a new sermon series. Um, Nick, on the quick cue number three, it should be blue and says, who's your one? If you'll pull that up, if not. But it's called, who's your one? And if you've been following on the Facebook page, I told Chris he's been killing it on the Facebook posts. I am terrible on Facebook, but there's been these uh, little uh, kind of, me- I guess, messages on Facebook um, every week about who's your one. I'm talking about picking one, who's your one. So we're going to dive into that today, and you guys will get to find out what who's your one is. So uh, in case I didn't tell you guys, my name's Nick. I'm one of the pastors here. <laughs> um, our mission at Gospel Community Church is to live authentic lives, proclaiming the new, good news of Jesus and inviting Castle Country to belong to and expand the way. Every time I preach, you guys are going to hear that. I'm going to pound it into your head so that when people ask you, oh, what church do you go to? What's it like there? Oh, this is our vision. So you guys can tell people that about Gospel Community Church. Um, how do we do this? How do we go on and, and invite people to belong to, expand the way? The Great Commission as... Uh, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, all, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of age. And we sum this up in a neat little phrase called no, grow, go. Know Jesus, grow in Jesus, and go share the hope found in Jesus. So we're going to do a little, uh, little bit of word association here with you guys, and I'm going, to, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to say a word, and you guys tell me what comes to mind. If you want to say it out loud, feel free to. Some of them you might not want to say it out loud. And so we're going to start off um, with something that's a little local, a word. When I say that, well, this is two words, actually, sorry. Coal miner. Now, what comes to mind when I say the word coal miner? <laughs> Grandfathers, okay. How about Democrat? That's another word. What comes to mind? What about Republican? <laughs> We're starting to get a lot of shouts out. What about Republican? Come on. What about the word vegan? What comes to mind when I say vegan? <laughs> what about meathead? Do you guys know what a meathead is? Where's that? Zach? No. <laughs> meathead. What about him? What about millennial? <laughs> used car salesman. How about used car salesman? How about a BYU fan? <laughs> what about pastor? Oh, man. I thought you guys were going to say terrible. No. <laughs> pastor's, uh, pastor's wife. <laughs> there you go. Queen. <laughs> What about PK? You guys know the term? Who grew up in the church knows what PK means? The pastor's kid. The PK. 
And now that we got like the, 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 we've primed the pump, what comes to mind when we say Christian? So there's a theologian, his name's Andy Stanley, and he says if you ask 10 Christians, or ask 10 people uh, what comes to mind when you say Christian, you're going to get probably nine different answers. Most people on the street, if asked, probably consider themselves Christians. But oftentimes you'll hear the words, yes, but. Yes, but I don't agree with the church's stance on this. Yes, but I don't believe what the Bible says on this. What, what the world, what, you know, what does the world think of Christians? And that the, 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 the world mocking Christians is nothing really new. So did a little history, and the word Christian is used three times in the Bible. And when it's first introduced, it was almost of a, like a way of mocking and insulting followers of Jesus. Little Christ is what, is what it essentially meant. And I think, you know, when, I, when, sorry, my dad's here and I'm about to make a joke about him. <laughs> but I think of when I'm kind of acting out of, uh, you know, kind of acting, uh, man, how do I be nice about this? <laughs> yeah, but my wife will say, okay, Bob. And I'm like, oh, okay, you're right. So I can't, that's kind of the picture that I got here when they're, calling them Christians, okay, little Christ, like thinking, you know, insulting them and making fun of them. But in Acts eleven twenty six, the first followers of Jesus referred to themselves as disciples. And like I said, the world called them Christians in an attempt to slander their name and make fun of what they were doing. The word disciple is used 281 times in the Bible. And so as we start this new series on who's your one and what it's all about, I'm going to start off with this question. And and, and maybe it's convicting, and I've been nervous to preach this message, but are all Christians disciples? Because a disciple, I feel, is a, a more accurate and compelling description of what it means to follow Jesus. Can one claim to be a Christian and not a disciple of Jesus? And we're, we're going we're gonna to dive into that. And here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we're going to start, instead of calling ourselves Christians, we should be calling ourselves disciples. But the word disciple is going to describe what it means for us to be a Christian. That the word Christian kind of obscures the fact that people claim to be Christians and are not actually disciples. Let's open up our Bibles and uh, we're going to read from Matthew chapter 4, 18 through 20. Jesus calls the first disciples. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he sat two brothers. Did I say verse 18? I don't remember if I did. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. 
Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for your word. And I pray today, God, as, as, as the, the message is being shared, God, that you would speak in and through me, that the Holy Spirit would be present in this place and that hearts would be open to what you have to say, God. I pray for each and every single person here that they would look to you, that they would seek your righteousness, seek your kingdom, and seek after you wholeheartedly, God. And I say these things in Jesus' name. So here we have uh, Jesus coming and calling these, these men to follow him. And as I was getting ready and reading through this, and I thought of, uh, I don't know if any of you have ever had the chance to play competitive sports. In high school, I got to play for a competitive soccer team, and they were called the Hobble Creek Storm. They were a pretty like, well-known team in northern Utah, and, and I got to go try out, and I made the team. But there were so many kids that tried out, there was an A team and a B team. Now the A team, they were like, they were the guys that grew up, they all played soccer together their whole lives, they, they, they just knew how the team worked, they, they knew what moves each other was making, they, they just gelled well as a team. That was the A team. And then the B team was all these kids that came from all over the state, and they made up this other team. Most of, I didn't know, I knew one kid there, me and him traveled from here and went up there. Um, and we were like the misfits. Um, we didn't quite have it all together like the A team, but we still would, uh, when we'd have practice, we would all play together. The A team and the B team would practice together. And, and the A team were like the guys that were naturally athletic. They didn't have to work real hard. They had the skills and the abilities. And the B team, we were the ones huffing and puffing as we're running drills and we're screwing the drills up. And so that was the B team. That was us over here. But I remember going out and, and trying out and seeing the A team and being a little discouraged to be on that B team because I thought I was good enough to be on the A team. And when we would practice and play, you know, the A-team, they would go, we'd go to tournaments, and the A-team was usually in, like, the top three. Um, and the B-team, we would, you know, just kind of get by. And I remember there was one tournament, though, that we played, and the A-team and the B-team had to play each other. We ended up in the same bracket, um, and we ended up having to play each other. And it was... Something happened that day, and the B team was on point. And, and we ended up beating the A team, and they had to go in the loser's bracket for the tournament, and we were so ecstatic, but after that, we lost out. We were done. And the A team went on further than we did, but it was so neat and so nice to be able to beat that A team for once. And if you're wondering why I'm talking about this, this is the image like, that I got as Jesus went and picked these four men to follow him. The B team. See, all Hebrew boys went to Torah school at the age of five. And they would study the Torah. And by the age of ten, these young boys knew the Torah. And the best ones went on to study the remainder of the Old Testament. The, the top of the class, all the, you know, the, the 4.0 students, 3.5 students, the 2.0 students where I was, they went home. <laughs> 
The rest returned home to work in their family business. So they, these 10-year-olds would go on and study the Old Testament some more. And by the age, around the age of 17, if you wanted to go on and make a career out of these religious studies, your next step was to find a rabbi. You'd go on and you'd find a rabbi that you admire and you would apply to become one of his disciples. And part of the application process is you'd find this rabbi and you would go and sit at his feet. That was your request to learn. That you wanted to be a disciple of this rabbi. And the rabbi would examine you with questions, put you through a series of tests, and he'd see if you were worthy to be his disciple. These rabbis would choose the smartest and the most talented young men to be their disciples. And another reason that these rabbis were so picky and they wanted the best, the brightest, the most talented, they were choosing someone whom they believed could become just like them. To not just know what they knew, but to do what they did, to follow so closely that they would imitate everything that that rabbi did. A bit of a reputation, a bit of a status. And for several years, these young men would follow their rabbis, imitating them in every way. And their sole purpose, their sole goal as a disciple of this rabbi was to become just like that rabbi. But here's here's kind of the first point I'm going to make. Jesus doesn't chooses the best. Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the most willing. When I looked at this, I see Jesus picking the B team. They weren't the best of the best. They were running the family businesses. These, these were fishermen. These were the guys that, showing that they didn't excel in the religious studies. This rabbi Jesus, he chose them. These were fishermen. They had no potential to everybody else. And, and when I thought of that, you know, in our area, we often think of that's, that's the coal miner. But Jesus chose these fishermen. Why wouldn't they follow him? Can you imagine that feeling of what, when Jesus came and chose them, that, that the world around you says you're nothing but a lousy, no good grunt, a stinky fisherman, grimy, filthy, grumpy, grouchy, tired, probably have a filthy mouth. Do you imagine what it was like when that rabbi Jesus walked by and chose them? Now, I, I, I highly doubt it was by chance that Jesus was just like strolling along and was like, oh, look here, there they are. I believe that Jesus had a purpose when he went out for that walk. And it led him there to those men. 
They're called and chosen to follow Jesus, to become like him, to know the Father, and to be filled with his power. John MacArthur, he puts it like this, God skipped all the wise of the day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens. The powerful were in Rome. He passed over Herodotus, the historian, and Socrates, the great thinker, and Julius Caesar. He chose men so ordinary, it was comical. No rabbis, no teachers, no religious experts. He chose the B team. Men that were going to show that the work of Jesus that, that was going to be done in the world would not be by their own power and the things that they knew and their abilities, but what, what he would do through them. The most abled and qualified men would only get in the way because they would never learn to lean on Jesus' power. His power in the weakest vessel is infinitely greater than the most talented, most qualified person without him. Jesus doesn't need our abilities. He doesn't need my abilities. I'm going to, I'm, I, I don't have any abilities, I don't think, but, <laughs> but Jesus doesn't need your abilities. He wants to use each and every one of us, and he wants our availability. Have you made yourself available? The second point uh, I want to share with you is he chose us, not we him. He says, follow me. As I mentioned, Jesus didn't stumble upon these men by accident. These men were not the top of their class. They didn't get the option to choose a rabbi. They didn't get to go sit at somebody's feet. They got sent home packing. They got sent back to their boats, back to their their parents to be fishermen. But Jesus doing everything upside down and backwards that he does, that the religious leaders were having everyone believe what the Messiah was looking like, he came seeking them the other way around. Those men did not have to go sit at Jesus' feet for Jesus to choose them. He came seeking them. Amen. Again, imagine that confidence. Imagine if you're out on the, you're in their shoes, you're in that boat, and you're thinking like you're just this lousy fisherman just trucking away, and this rabbi, Jesus, who maybe you've heard about, maybe you were there at the baptism, you saw the clouds open up, you see the power that is in this Jesus. And imagine what they felt that day when Jesus chose them. Rest in the truth that he chose you. He chose you to be his disciple. John 15, 16, I don't have this on the board, but uh, if you want to turn your Bibles there, it's one verse. Oh, that's my cable. Uh, John 15, 16 says, this is the words of Jesus. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit 
and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he may give it to you. He chose you to be his disciple, and I like what it, it, he says to go and bear fruit. And not only that, but fruit that should abide, fruit that should be long-lasting. Third point, our primary calling is to be with him. I was listening to a sermon to help me get prepared for this message, and he was talking about the words, follow me. And the, the original text, it says, lehak hadai. That's what follow me is. And it's like, man, that sounds lehak hadai. Like, ooh. It's almost like Mufasa, lehak hadai. Follow me. And, and I, got, I, I completely read that picture like when you see the movies, when Jesus comes and sees the men on the boat and he's got his uh, white robes on and the, the, the blue sash going across and he's got the long, beautiful, almost as beautiful hair as mine. No. <laughs> but he's got the long, beautiful hair and he's, follow me. Like this is rugged Jesus. Like, so Jesus didn't call them into an assignment. His primary calling is to be with him. You know, it's easy, uh, especially as a pastor, like I get on and read all these different blogs. And it's like seven ways to make a disciple, seven ways to do this, five things you should do in your worship service today. Jesus didn't come with some kind of assignment or a list. He didn't lay out a seven-step plan of what it was going to look like to follow him. They didn't know what they were going to do. He comes walking along and tells them to follow me, to be like him. To be like him, you need to know him. To know him, you've got to spend time with him. To spend time with him means you soak in every word that flows out of his mouth. Get in his word. Spend time with him. Come to, come to Sunday, Sunday service with us. We're going to be in his word. Join a community group. We're going to be in his word. Sing songs because we're going to be in his word. Go to the if table tonight because they're going to be in his word. Get his word inside you to where it dominates your thinking and it changes your behavior. And you think it, you talk it, and you quote it, and you live it. Number four, to follow him, we have to leave all. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So we kind of, the boat and the father, we're going to talk about those two things for a minute. Maybe you've heard this analogy before, but the the boat, it's going to, how do we apply this scripture? It's the way that we take care of ourselves. Maybe it's our careers, the thing that brings in the money. And they're asked to leave all that. And the father, to leave the boat and their father and follow him. Father is our most significant relationships. Probably for most of us, we are never going to have to walk away from our jobs. Rather, we'll be ambassadors for Christ in those places, in those positions. Some, they're going to be called overseas. They're going to be called to Africa, Australia, wherever. 
And they're going to be called to leave it all behind. You know, five years ago, um, I was hoping Sam would be here, but she's not. But Sam, we sent her out as part of a church plant. She left everything behind, her job and everything, for carrying out the call to go make disciples. And she left it all behind. She jumped out of the boat where it was comfortable. And again, most of us will never lose those most significant relationships when we become followers of Christ. Those closest to us just might think it's our new thing we're doing. Always on this kick, religious kick. How many of you guys have heard that? But this really happens. Now, uh, there's uh, a young gal, she used to come here and she placed her faith in Christ and immediately her family was ready to walk away from their relationship with her. Her family were uh, atheists. They didn't believe in Christ. They didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't believe in God. And to this day, they still don't talk to her. You know, we had another guy here that he started coming and um, when he placed his faith in Christ, his wife wanted no part of it. She left him, took the kids. And, and the enemy prowls on situations like this because his faith was broken. But these things, we really will lose some significant relationships. And that for most of us, there's just going to be moments of our lives where we've got to hold, you know, what, which holds a greater sway over our lives, Jesus or the world. That's what it's going to look like for most of us. My fifth and probably final point in this text is he commands us to spiritually reproduce. He said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Is there such thing as a non-reproducing Christian? There shouldn't be. John 15, 8 says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus tells us how to be disciples in the Great Commission that we read uh, at the very beginning. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of age. shouldn't be Christians that are non-reproducing. In his book, uh, this author Robert Coleman, it's called The Master Plan of Evangelism, he puts it this way, when will the church learn this lesson? Preaching to the masses, although necessary, will never suffice in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism. Nor can occasional prayer meetings and training classes for Christian workers do this job. Individual women and men are God's method. God's plan for discipleship is not something but someone. And this is, this is a point that I've been stressed about, that I've brought up to Tony and Chris many times, and we as leaders have his stress, stressed at Gospel Community Group that discipleship isn't a program. It's not going to be a class that we hold. It is something we do. It's something that we live 
And like this, this, I've been wrestling with this over the last probably year and a half of what is disciple making. It's kept me up at night trying to figure out, God, what do you mean when you tell me to go make disciples? What, what are you even talking about? How do I make disciples? I don't know how to make disciples. What am I even doing pastoring this church? Am I even making disciples here, God? I don't even know what I'm doing. And, and it's a question that keeps coming up in my mind over and over again. God, how do I make disciples? What are you even talking about? How do I make disciples? And, and I'm going to share this story with you. Um, not to brag on me, to brag on God. So I have some friends, um, Frog and Julie, coincidentally, they're not here today, but uh, <laughs> I was going to ask their permission if I could talk about them in the sermon, but they're not here, so, oh well. <laughs> but Frog and Julie, Nathan and Julie, maybe you guys know him as Nathan, I know him as Frog. Um, I was wrestling with some stuff the other, a few weeks ago on Grace. And I was just feeling really down and really in the, in the uh, just pits about this concept of grace. And why is God even giving me grace? And in conversations with Nathan, this is something he struggled with, like as long as I've known him for the last four years, this concept of grace. So it's 5.30 in the morning, and uh, I'm up wide awake, and I text him like, man, how do you deal with struggling with grace? And he starts texting me back, texting me back, all these things, and I'm still struggling. Later that night, um, get the kids to bed, and it's like 9 o'clock at night, and I see my phone ringing, and it's frog. And I'm, I'm just like, man, I, if you guys haven't met Frog or no Frog or Nathan, whatever you want to call him, that kid can talk. He can talk. And we, him and I can talk for hours. Literally, we went to, he was, uh, when he was working at the mine, he was working weekends. I took him down and back to Durango with me for work. 13-hour road trip. I downloaded podcasts and music. We talked for 13 hours. There was not a dull moment in that truck when me and Frog went down and back. But he's, he's asking me how I'm doing, how come I'm struggling, what's going on, and, and he starts speaking about the gift of grace and, and what a gift it is. And man, I'm sitting on the phone, and it hits me. God's like, that's how you make a disciple. I'm like, what, what, what happened? what I miss? And I, I got off the phone, and I just started reflecting on the last four years. I met Frog up at the mine. He was in the warehouse. Uh, we had a mutual friend. I asked him, I said, hey, your voice sounds familiar. Do you know so-and-so? And he puffs his chest up. Yeah, he's my best friend. Why? I'm like, well, he's one of my best friends. And it was like, if you guys have seen the movie Step Brothers, it's like that moment. Did we just become best friends? like so we had we just had this uh this moment and ever since then i mean the the baines that's their last name they spent a lot of time at our house i bet you we have them over two to three times a month if not more 
My wife sees Julie almost every day. They go to the gym together, and it's become one of Jessica's best friends, and she got to baptize her. And that's when it clicked, like, making disciples. What did Jesus do? He spent some time with those people. And it's, as I share that with you, remember that people aren't projects. You don't spend time with somebody because they're a project. That's not the way Jesus sees them. That's not the way God views them. That's someone that is God's image bearer. It's not a project. God wants to use you. You are going to be God's method. He's got it all planned out already. But you're God's method. Don't let that intimidate you. Disciple making is as simple as teaching someone to follow Jesus as you follow Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't have to be, it doesn't need to be made difficult. And I think about, you know, a couple people, um, and more than a couple, but a, a family of people that helped make me into a disciple. And three of them are sitting right here in the second row. The time that you guys have spent with my family it's just amazing. And when I think of disciple making, I look at the example you guys were to me and my family. When we started our community group, I look to how Dave and Deb did things. They fed people. They loved on people. And, and not only me, like I look at other people that have come out of their community group. Mike Nichols. I've never heard you complain about anything, man. <laughs> and they didn't make it difficult. It wasn't something, a program. They didn't view any of us as projects. And they've always been quick to point us to Jesus, to the gospel, to the things that were done on this cross. And I'm thankful for that. And that's, that's the heart of what this who's your one is. So we're going to, I'm going to uh, invite uh, in a minute to have Pastor Tony and Jen come up and hand out these bookmarks. So these bookmarks on there say who's your one. And they got a little, perfor some of them have little perforated parts to tear off. But I want you to spend some time this week praying over who's one person that you would like to see come to faith? Who is one person that you would like to see have a relationship with Jesus? Now, you don't have to have an answer right away. I thought I had mine, and just discussing it with my wife, um, I've already been rethinking who's my one, who my one is. So we're going to take some time this week as a church, and we're going to pray over 
Who's your one? Imagine if each and every one of us focused on one person, loving that person with some intentionality to point them to Christ. Who's your one? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you a Christian? Are you a disciple? If you can't answer that, if you're struggling to answer that, maybe you're someone's one. Maybe you're the one that someone's been praying for. So, Tony, if you'll come up, you and Jen, if you'll hand out the bookmarks here. The perforated part, if you guys, you don't have to write first and last names, but bring this back next week, um, and we'll drop it in the box, and that way us as leadership can also be praying for these people. And it's just a way to really just focus our attention as a church and pray for our city, pray for our loved ones and those around us. Here. Sorry. And I handed them all out, and I still had a point to make. <laughs> so on this, you'll notice, so starting next Sunday, we as a church, it has day one, day two, all through day 30. So we're going to spend the next four weeks, because this is week one, it's a five-week sermon series. Next four weeks, there's a uh, scripture there, and then you're going to pray along for that person every single day for the next 30 days starting next Sunday, and we're going to do it as a church. Um, in your community groups, if you guys want to spend time praying for each of your one, feel free to do it. We're going to do it in ours. Um, and then if you've got the Bible app, do people, anybody have the Bible app? You got the Bible app? If you've got the Bible app and you search who's your one, there's the 30-day reading plan and some prayers to help you go along with it. So we're going to spend time praying for our loved ones. Not as projects, but as people made in the image of God. If you have any questions on this, uh, feel free to grab me, Pastor Tony, um, Chris. Um, trying to think. My wife, she knows a lot about it. Jen. But let's pray for our loved ones. Join me in prayer now. Father God, I thank you for your amazing grace. I thank you for just some, some resources and the tools that you give us, God, to do things like this as a church. That you would help us to be not shy, to give us boldness and courage, God, to go out and share your gospel, to share life with those ones around us. I pray, God, that whatever we have in our minds about what disciple-making looks like, God, I just pray that you would take just all those things away and that we would just look to your word and look to you, God, and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. I pray for those people that maybe they already have that one in mind, God, that you would just make it firm in their mind to know that that's the person there to choose. And I pray for, for those that are still struggling with that, God, for discernment in them that the Holy Spirit would fill them up and they would know, God, exactly who you are calling them to pray for. Our prayers work because we have a big God. And I just thank you for your amazing grace, for the work that was done on the cross, that you came, you left your throne, your perfect life, and you laid it all down 
for us. We have that message, God, to go share. We want to point people to the hope found in Jesus. And we say these things in Jesus' name. Amen.